Welcome, everyone, to Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. Uh, it's been a long time since I've uh, recorded a new podcast. This is sort of the busy retail season. But uh, I'm back, and some people have asked me to talk about Islam and Islamic history, which is something I've already referred to many times indirectly when talking about the Middle Ages and the Crusades and so forth. So now I'm going to try to make a few basic clarifying lectures about Islam, uh, and this will be the first one. I'm going to talk mainly historically about the beginning of Islam. And I'll also go through uh, not only uh, the Prophet, but the early Caliphate, the first Islamic Empire. And while this is not a sort of full conceptual explanation of Islam as a religion, I'll leave that to others, uh, to, to Islamic scholars or apologists for the religion, I will explain the roots of some basic core ideas, Islamic ideas and concepts that you've probably already heard of before. Things like uh, Sharia, Jihad, things like this. I'll try to give them some historical uh, explanation, but then there'll be a lot about Islamic ideas, practices, civilization that hopefully I'll get to further in, in later lectures. So here I'm basically going to talk uh, mainly about the roots of the religion, where it came from, and how it first expanded and became an imperial power under the early caliphs. And I'm going to go up through the Umayyad dynasty, the first uh, family dynasty of caliphs, and down to the, the overthrow of the Umayyads by the Abbasids in the 700s. So it's basically going to cover about the first 140 years of this religion. And you probably know that in the era that we call the Middle Ages in Europe, uh, Islam was a massively powerful, uh, flourishing storehouse of knowledge, wealth, art, really unlike the Middle East had ever seen before in its history, which far overshadowed all of its neighbors, especially Western Christendom. And this new religion and new civilization began from totally bizarre and unexpected roots. Okay, It started from a handful of small cities in the Western Arabian desert, in an area that was really uh, obscure, generally poor, thinly populated, and that nobody saw as a potential imperial center uh, at all, probably at any time in its history, let alone in the chaotic 7th century. So this is really the story of one of the great surprise turns in all of known human history, how really bands of small semi-nomadic tribes ended up creating an entirely new power center and capital of world civilization amazingly quickly, practically out of, out of nothing, out of scratch, in what is, in world historical terms, the blink of an eye. So how did this uh, begin? 
And how do the roots of this new civilization and its new doctrines uh, shape the life of hundreds of millions of Muslims down through the ages since then? So as I said, I'll talk about Muhammad the Prophet and I'll talk about uh, the early construction of Islamic life and civilization. Uh, but first, I'll just talk a little bit about Arabia before the rise of Islam and how these conditions um, set the stage for this really dramatic new development of the, the rise of this new, this new religion and its political empire. So as I said, Arabia before, let's say before 600, right? So before the Prophet Muhammad uh, begins having uh, visions and giving sermons, uh, Arabia before Islam was truly a fringe area. You know, just as much as these fringe areas of Europe that I talked about in, in the Dark Age, like uh, Britain and Scandinavia, uh, Arabia is overwhelmingly desert, with some scrubland, dry stepland, and here and there some oases. It was in late antiquity, this, this era, the 6th, 7th centuries, it was generally very poor and thinly populated. You had semi-nomadic, generally shepherding tribes living off of grazing sheep, goats, and camels that could sometimes manage some small-scale agriculture around the oases, uh, but that really could not produce enough of a food surplus to support cities or much less large states, kingdoms, uh, or empires. It was a very tribal society. People maintained their safety and security by adhering close to tribal and clan groups with sort of strongmen leaders that could protect their subjects. There was very frequent raiding and pillaging back and forth among these various tribal groups. Usually this raiding and pillaging didn't result in killing. It was mo mainly just kind of small-scale fighting over the limited wealth and resources that people could extract out of this desert environment. But sometimes when this small-scale tribal war resulted in killing, there were vendettas, right? So these tribes would sort of keep accounts of who had killed whom, and they would seek out revenge in often protracted cycles of violence and, and vengeance, right? So this was, this was really a feuding tribal society, a lot like the way we might think of, say, uh, you know, um, Sicily under the Mafia or, uh, or the Scottish Highlands, but arguably even more unstable and, and even more poor. Their situation as being generally poor, thinly populated, and violent and unstable was really accentuated by the fact that they were not too far away from much more powerful agrarian civilizations, right? So they were not too far from Persia and the Persian Empire. They were not too far from the civilizations of the Eastern Mediterranean 
which at that time were under Byzantine rule, right? They were so Egypt, Palestine, Syria, these were provinces with often uh, flourishing cities and trade that were at that time under the the east they were provinces of the Eastern Roman Empire or as we call it now the Byzantine Empire. They also had some contact with significant powerful kingdoms to the south such as Yemen uh, on the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula and across the Red Sea Ethiopia which was a sizable powerful kingdom. So the benefit that Arabs were sometimes able to, to extract from this uh, proximity to larger and more powerful societies was, was trade. So although this was a, a, an overwhelmingly poor and thinly populated area, by the 6th century, some small oasis towns and small cities were able to gain some benefit and some wealth from managing long-distance trade, right? So certain towns, like, for example, Mecca, did manage to launch regular uh, trade caravans, which would trade certain commodities, particularly silver and leather, to these nearby civilizations, like the Byzantine Empire, the Persian Empire, and Ethiopia. And as a result, some towns were able to grow to some substantial size and were able, through this trade, to acquire food to support a larger population, right? So if you were in a town like Mecca or Yathrib, which I'll mention more later, you could have a sizable settled population located there around an oasis for most of the year or all of the year that could maybe grow some of its own food but also imported a lot of food through trade and some clans were able to gain some degree of wealth which raised them in status and power over the other surrounding tribes and clans because they could manage this trade. Most of the peoples in Arabia were polytheistic. There were many tribal gods, many local gods, gods personifying natural forces, personifying the seasons of the year, and so forth. And certain groups of Arabs would actually consolidate uh, the worship of many different deities and cults. Okay, and Mecca, the, this uh, sizable town located on an oasis in west-central Arabia, was an important site of worship of these various Arab gods. And this is true long before the appearance of Muhammad on the scene. Mecca was already a significant pilgrimage site, and the most powerful and wealthiest clan that basically dominated the town of Mecca, the Quraysh, or I should say tribe, uh, the Quraysh, were merchant traders and they were also managers of the pilgrimage to Mecca. They took it as their special duty to uh, host and support and sell goods and services to Arab pilgrims who would travel to Mecca, particularly at certain times of year, and would worship at the Kaaba. So the Kaaba is a small rectangular temple in the center of a clear courtyard in the town of Mecca. And we don't know exactly when the Kaaba was first built. It's actually pretty mysterious, but it seems to go back certainly several centuries 
before the time of Muhammad and possibly even earlier than that. By the 6th century, the Kaaba was a significant site where pilgrims would uh, come into Mecca, they would pray or make offerings in the Kaaba, and the Kaaba had in it 360 idols or figures of deities that had been collected over the centuries. So you could see gods of various different places, different phenomena, arranged around the inside of this small temple. And it seems there were 360 probably as a reference to the days of the year and the calendar. And embedded into one corner of the Kaaba was a sacred black stone, which was treated as the most holy object in the Kaaba, and it probably was originally a meteorite which people in Mecca took as sacred because it had come from the sky. So the, the so-called Hajj pilgrimage practice of, of making pilgrimage to Mecca and worshiping at the Kaaba was already fairly popular by the 6th century. However, at the same time, these polytheistic Arabs who worshiped various gods and often made these pilgrimages to Mecca were also aware of monotheistic religions in the surrounding societies, right? So as I said, they were aware of Persia, the Byzantine Empire, Ethiopia, and many of these surrounding societies were Christian. Uh, you know, the Byzantine Empire was Eastern Orthodox Christian. Ethiopia also has an Orthodox Christian church. Uh, so they were aware to, to varying degrees of Christianity as well as of Judaism and Jews. There were small, uh, scattered Jewish clans located in various towns and small cities around Arabia. Uh, some people Judaized, meaning they took on the customs and practices of Jews, and some probably over time converted and became accepted as Jews. There also were scattered numbers of Christians in Arabia as well. So the, uh, the basically Monophysite Christianity that you found in Egypt at this time, the uh, Ethiopian Orthodox Christianity, these would spread through trade and travel and gain uh, converts and adherents so that if you um, traveled around Arabia at this time, you would meet various uh, different Christians of different sorts scattered here and there. And knowledge of the basic core ideas of Judaism and Christianity, the idea of one creator God who gives laws through uh, prophets. These were pretty familiar ideas among Arabs. And uh, not only that, there was uh, a, a notion gaining currency in Arabia, it seems, in the 6th and early 7th centuries, a notion that the supreme god of the Arab pantheon, who was simply called Allah, or the god, was in some way the same, the same deity as the god worshipped by Jews and Christians. Okay, so this notion of an identity, that there was, there was a supreme god uh, presiding over all others, that Arabs worshipped, that was somehow the same god, as the god of the Jewish uh, and Christian scriptures was in the air, let's say, in Mecca. There also was a, an idea first put forward by Jews that some Arabs took up, which was that 
Arabs, like Jews, were also descended from Abraham. So if we think of that original uh, Jewish patriarch attested in the book of Genesis, who first makes a covenant uh, with God and originates the Jewish people, uh, well, in Genesis, uh, we're told that Abraham initially had a son with his concubine or mistress, Hagar, and he had a son named Ishmael. But later, he and his wife, his properly uh, married wife, Sarah, had another son, uh, Isaac, and Isaac became the heir of Abraham, and Jews claimed to be descended from Isaac, uh, and hence through, to, from Abraham through Isaac. Well, an idea came up over time in late antiquity that Arabs were related to Jews, which appears to be true if you look at the close relationship between the Arabic and Hebrew language. Uh, it seems they are ethnically related. Well, an idea arose that Arabs are simply the descendants of Ishmael, and hence they too are heirs and descendants of Abraham just by a different line, right? So these ideas, it seems, were already current uh, in Arabia by about 600 or so, that uh, Arabs could trace their ancestry back to this ancient patriarch Abraham, that they were, in a sense, distant cousins of the Jews, and that their supreme deity, which they called Allah, was also the god of Abraham, and hence the god of Jewish and Christian mythology and worship. And we're told by some uh, early Islamic documents, we're even told that in the 6th century, at the time when Muhammad was growing up in Mecca, there was a growing interest in the teachings of Jews and Christians, and that there were four prominent Meccan men who decided to embrace monotheism, who abjured the worship of all of these various hundreds of other uh, Arab gods, and who went out in search of the pure teachings or uh, pristine, pure truths of the Abrahamic religion, and that three of these men converted to Christianity, which was not an uncommon thing to happen in Arabia. And one of them, rather than simply converting to Christianity in Mecca, instead set out northward in search of Jewish and Christian teachers. And reportedly, this man eventually made his way to Syria. He communicated with Christian monks in Syria, and one of these monks delivered to him a, a prophecy of a sort saying, you do not have to come up here to this land and look for Judaism or Christianity because a prophet is going to come to you in Arabia, right? So if we're to believe these particular sources, there was even an anticipation of a possible coming uh, Arab prophet of the Abrahamic God. Now, it, it makes sense that... Uh, possibly this conversation might have really happened, although it certainly, you know, is a, a convenient story for Muslims to tell uh, about their own history and hence, you know, legitimizing uh, the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, it, it might be true because we also know that some Jews and Christians actually looked down on Arabs, saw them as sort of, uh, you know, barbaric, primitive tribal people, and would even uh, mock them or condescend to them because they had been left out of the divine scheme. They, they 
might recognize the truth and the legitimacy of the Jewish and Christian holy books and of Jewish and Christian prophecies, but they had not been sent any prophet of their own, right? They had not received any uh, holy writ or holy laws in their own Arabic language. And in this sense, in addition to being sort of tribal, nomadic, generally poor people, they also uh, did not have the dignity of their own uh, divine books or divine prophets. So it only makes sense that around 600 or so, uh, there were Arabs who had something of an inferiority complex uh, and who were really looking and hoping, perhaps, for uh, some kind of revelation to come to them as Arabs in the Arabic language to elevate them to the same level of cosmic importance as these other peoples that they were aware of around them. Okay, so I hope you can see here how this sort of sets the stage for what's, uh, for the turn of events that's going to happen. Now, Muhammad himself, who was he and how did he come onto the scene? Muhammad was a man from Mecca, from the tribe, the tribe of the Quraysh, who I mentioned before, who are this increasingly wealthy and powerful, largely mercantile tribe that uh, dominate the scene in Mecca and who have taken up the role of managing the pilgrimage trade in and out of Mecca. Now, the rise of these clans like the Quraysh uh, was a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it promised to possibly raise the Arab world in dignity, that, that there were these increasingly wealthy and powerful uh, political groups coming onto the scene whom uh, Jews and Christians, Ethiopia, Yemen were aware of. But at the same time, it put a strain on the traditional tribal ethic of Arabia, which tended to be very egalitarian. Right? In tribal societies, you tend to have complicated codes of equality and sort of diplomatic politeness among the leaders of tribes. Right? So each tribe and each clan demanded a certain level of respect from others. And heads of families, heads of tribes were seen as putatively and formally equal. Right? Well, that ethic is becoming increasingly difficult to sustain and implausible as these groups like the Quraysh uh, rise on the scene. Okay, so Muhammad is in the middle of this increasingly sort of tense situation where you have uh, a lot of resentment, a lot of friction among the different tribal groups as some sort of make plays for greater power and status, and an increasing anxiety among Arabs about their uh, relative poverty and sort of lower position of dignity with relation to other peoples around the Near East and East Africa. Okay, Muhammad himself was born probably about the year 570. All the sources are not totally consistent about his age, so we're not sure, but it was around the year 570. He uh, made his living early on as a minor merchant, so he was a fairly typical average Meccan man, a sort of uh, a minor merchant managing to support himself in the town. He apparently had some talent and probably some degree of charm and charisma. 
since when he was fairly young, in his 20s, he married an older, very wealthy, accomplished uh, widow and accomplished merchant named Khadija. Uh, we know Khadija was older than Muhammad. We don't know exactly how much. She might have been around 40 or so when Muhammad married her when he was in his 20s. Through Khadija, Muhammad was able to raise his profile and become more strongly involved in the world of sort of wealthy, long-distance trade in Mecca. Like many Meccan men, uh, Muhammad would go on what you might call kind of reverse pilgrimages. He, at certain times of the year, especially during the month of Ramadan, Muhammad would go out and fast and pray in the caves in the hills outside of Mecca. He would sort of pray and meditate, and like many of these uh, uh, Meccans, he would also give out alms from his wealth to whatever poorer people might find him in these caves. Okay, so th this was uh, th these were all pretty common practices among Arab merchants and townsmen uh, in the five and six hundreds. And as far as we can see, this, this did not put Muhammad particularly out of the ordinary run of things. However, one night in the middle of Ramadan in the year 610 AD, Muhammad had a very powerful vision, which completely changed his life and, and his character. On that night, which has been called the Night of Power, uh, Muhammad was uh, fasting and praying in a cave, as he often did, and he suddenly saw the angel Gabriel appear above him, right? And Christians and Jews should know, you know, the angel Gabriel is sort of the most revered, most respected uh, messenger of God, uh, it's the same angel that, according to Christians, announced to Mary that she would give birth to Christ. This angel Gabriel appeared to Muhammad and showed him some sort of scrolls or written documents and began ordering him very forcefully to recite. Muhammad could not do this because he was illiterate, you know, as most people in Mecca at this time were. He could not read. Uh, so he he was unable to, and the angel, with increasing agitation, uh, swooped down upon him, seized his body, and somehow through some force caused him to begin reciting prophecies out loud. Okay. Uh, this was a really terrifying uh, and shocking and, according to Muhammad, uh, painful experience of sort of having these divine words, which at that point he probably couldn't really understand or process, being forced out of his body. Apparently, he continued to have these visions and visitations from the angel Gabriel for a long time, and he kept uh, reciting these sort of poetic prophecies uh, over and over. And initially, he did not tell anyone about this. He 
thought that uh, people would think he was crazy, they wouldn't uh, believe him, or they wouldn't believe that these visitations were real. But over the course of months, he began to tell some people, first his wife Khadija, then uh, some other uh, female uh, friends and relations, and then uh, his older friend, the cloth merchant Abu Bakr, and other male friends and associates. Uh, and Khadija and some of these other close friends uh, believed Muhammad, and they believed that these prophecies were real and valid prophecies from the high God, right, Allah. Uh, however, even still, for two years, he kept this knowledge of what was happening uh, basically uh, private among personal friends and relations. It was only two years later that he was persuaded by some of these early believers to begin preaching publicly about his visitations from the angel Gabriel and the prophecies that he was delivering. And I won't get uh, too deeply into what these prophecies said. I'll talk more ab about their contents later. But we know that there was a basic core message of strict monotheism, right? That Allah, the high God, was the only God, uh, that this was the same God as the God of Abraham and Moses and the Jews and the Christians, uh, and that uh, Arabs should uh, worship only this God and should live a life of sort of prayer, simplicity, and charity based on the teachings of this one God. He began to gather a small group of probably a few dozen devoted followers who would pray regularly facing towards Jerusalem, right? So they, they consider themselves to be devotees of this God who is the same God of the Jews and Christians, and hence they see Jerusalem as the center of their universe. This group of followers that Muhammad began to gather in Mecca in 612 and through the rest of the 610s was something very new and unusual in Arabia because it was a cross-tribal group, right? These were people who were showing their loyalty towards a leader based on theology and based on an ideological commitment and not because of blood ties. So this was uh, a strange phenomenon, and it naturally presented something of a threat to the tribal-based power system in Mecca and on the uh, powerful clan and tribal leaders who depended on the loyalty of their group members. So the leadership class, the ruling class of Mecca, at first is cautiously tolerant towards this growing group of Muhammad followers uh, and basically see them as acceptable so long as they don't try to completely step outside the power structure of the tribes and clans. But by around 618 or so, uh, the, the Muhammad movement had grown large enough that it really threatened to challenge the, uh, the dominance of the tribal elders. Hence, the Quraysh tribe, the main uh, ruling tribe of, of Mecca, from which Muhammad himself descended, uh, banned Muhammad and his followers in the sense that they uh, refused, they basically boycotted them, refusing to trade with them and refusing to 
extend tribal protection to any of them. So basically, if you joined this Muhammad group, uh, you could not buy food, right? And in a place like Mecca, where it really wasn't feasible to grow enough food to support the population, you had to trade for food. So this this trade ban uh, really threatened Muhammad and his followers with uh, starvation. It's theorized that this is probably one of the reasons why Muhammad's wife Khadija died around this time, was the lack of adequate food and medicine. There also was the lack of protection, right? So that meant if someone in your group was uh, attacked, uh, murdered, raped, uh, you didn't have the power of the tribal chieftains to exact punishment and hence to protect you. So this sort of unprecedented religious group that emerged around Muhammad in Mecca was really under dire threat from all directions by about the year 620. So in the early 620s, Muhammad would travel around, he would go to trade fairs and caravans, basically advertising himself as a prophet from the high god and asking someone to extend him protection. <laughs> he was a, a prophet in search of uh, a tribe to protect him. And initially, he got some interest from some merchants and emissaries from the town of Yathrib, north uh, at another oasis many miles north of Mecca. So these traders from Yathrib saw a possible opportunity in Muhammad. They uh, basically had a lot of squabbling and civil infighting within Yathrib among their tribal and clan groups, and they, they liked the idea of sort of a prophet visionary to unify their people around a new message and a new law. Uh, they also knew, it seems, uh, there, there were a number of Jews in Yathrib, and some of the non-Jews in Yathrib were aware that the Jews anticipated a possible Messiah to come and unify the Jews and reestablish a Jewish kingdom. And they probably didn't want Muhammad to be sort of found and adopted by the Jews as their new prophet or Messiah, and instead wanted to sort of co-opt him first as an Arab leader, rather than see him become a sort of rallying point and leader for Jews. So whatever their particular motivations, these emissaries from Yathrib in the year 621 uh, saw something potentially appealing in Muhammad. And the following year, 622, Yathrib sent a delegation to Mecca to make contact with Muhammad and formally offer him protection if he would come and uh, relocate to Yathrib. So Muhammad and his followers decided to take this opportunity and made initial plans to basically sneak out of Mecca and relocate to Yathrib. This was actually a fairly dangerous proposition because the leaders of Mecca knew that if Muhammad left and went to another city, that he would basically be violating the ties and bonds of clans and tribes that kept people in Mecca and he threatened to possibly uh, unify and mobilize some rival power that might eventually threaten the predominance of Mecca as a center of trade uh, and politics in Arabia. So naturally, the, the 
tribal leaders of Mecca tried to prevent this flight out of Mecca to Yathrib. And Muhammad had to first secretly send some of his followers out under cover of darkness to make their way to Yathrib. And finally, Muhammad himself and his closest uh, friends and associates, including Abu Bakr, snuck out, pursued by uh, attackers and assassins. And at one point, they actually had to hide in a cave on their way out of Mecca in order to evade uh, these assassins. And they were successfully able to slip out of Meccan territory and make their way to Yathrib. Okay. So once this group uh, of Muhammad followers make their way to Yathrib, this, uh, this flight is traditionally called the, the Hejirah, or uh, the emigration. And the people who made this Hejirah to Yathrib are, were called Muhajirun, uh, emigrants. And once in Yathrib, they basically set themselves up as the new uh, formal or symbolic leaders of the city. Uh, they began to, they, they stopped using the traditional name Yathrib and they began to simply call this new place where they lived the city or Medina, as it's now called, right? So Yathrib became sort of rechristened as Medina. And the Muhajirun set themselves up as uh, sort of lawgivers and leaders. Uh, Muhammad becomes the sort of unofficial de facto leader of Medina. And they set about creating what they consider a sort of ideal, utopian, unified community in Medina, which they called the Amma. Okay, and this, this, uh, this word, U-M-M-A-H, uh, which simply means uh, the group or the community is still used uh, today to refer to all the followers of uh, Islam or all the followers of Islam and people who live under Islamic rule. Okay, and it seems that's how the word was used uh, in Medina. They set up uh, a system uh, of laws and customs uh, which forbade uh, tribal feuding and clan feuding, which demanded that the primary loyalty of all the people of Medina be to, uh, to the city and to Muhammad. Uh, and this included not only uh, the Muhajirun, who had emigrated to Medina, but also what were called the Ansars, the new converts who embraced Muhammad and his teachings in Medina, and also the Jews, right? So Jews were also considered fully part of the Ummah, who would uh, pay taxes the same as the leaders of, uh, of the uh, Muhajirun, and they would equally take part in the defense of the city. Okay, and at this time, the, the word Muslim uh, began to be used, it seems, and Muslim means uh, one who submits, right? So these were people who willingly submitted to the leadership of Muhammad and to his laws and teachings, and this submission was called Islam, right? And Islam, uh, it, it means submission to God, right? Uh, but it also is closely etymologically related to salam, meaning peace, uh, and that, of course, is related to the, the Hebrew word uh, shalom uh, and, and uh, Jerusalem, uh, the sanctuary of peace. So, uh, so Islam has this sort of complex of meanings of, of submission to God, to the laws of God, and also unity and peace, right? And these are the ideals that these early Muslims believed they could enact uh, in Medina. 
early on, these this Amma in Medina continued to pray and observe fasts, much as they had, much as the the early followers of Muhammad had done in Mecca, and they continued to pray in the direction of Jerusalem. But it seems that pretty quickly, in about 623 or 24, they reoriented their prayers from Jerusalem to Mecca. And it seems a large part of the reason for this was that uh, Muhammad experienced frustration and conflict with the Jews in Medina, or at least with certain Jewish clans in Medina. Uh, He was uh, frustrated that many of the Jews in Medina refused to recognize him and embrace him as a real prophet. Uh, And also he was sort of shocked and horrified to learn that Jews and Christians didn't all believe the same things and that there were serious theological differences and disputes among Jews and Christians. And this uh, apparently disillusioned him and is part of why he then reoriented the prayers instead of facing towards Jerusalem, facing towards Mecca, right? So they reorient southward facing towards Mecca as a way of affirming the kind of independence and possibly uh, supremacy of Muhammad's group and their teachings uh, and its its separateness from the Judaism and Christianity that they had known before. So uh, this at this point, it seems Mecca becomes the sort of new religious center of Islam rather than Jerusalem. And this is ironic considering that Medina and the Ummah were naturally in a state of feud and conflict with Mecca. Right? Mecca was not going to let this Hijrah uh, go lightly. Uh, they saw Medina and this new uh, Islamic society forming there under Muhammad's leadership as a threat. And there was a series of wars uh, fought between uh, Mecca and Medina stretching from about 624 to 630. Right, And we don't know uh, the details of exactly how these wars started, but it probably began on a small scale as sort of raids back and forth between the two cities, much as had happened in Arabia for hundreds of years among clan and tribal groups, right? So uh, at some point, Medina began harassing and raiding the Meccan trade caravans. Uh, And in 624, they inflicted a pretty serious defeat on a large uh, Meccan military force protecting one of their caravans. Uh, Mecca naturally uh, fought back inflicted a pretty serious defeat uh, on Medina a few years later. Uh, And in 627, let's see, do I have this correct? Yeah, 627, the the Meccan army launched a full-scale attack on Medina, right? And and the normal way that battles tended to happen in Arabia is that uh, parties, groups, bands would, would meet out in the open desert and do battle and see who could outwit whom. But in this case, uh, Muhammad had the Medinan forces withdraw into the city, take shelter in the surrounding hills, and dig a trench around the one side of the city that was exposed, right? So they set up defensive earthworks, and the Meccan forces basically don't know how to deal with this, and are totally uh, slaughtered, leading to a a tremendous 
victory by Medina and destruction of most of Mecca's military power. Now, in this time, these various Jewish clans had in many cases grown disillusioned and frustrated with Muhammad's rule. Uh, They didn't like the pressure on them to embrace Muhammad and basically convert to this new set of beliefs. Uh, So a rift opened up between Muhammad and several Jewish clans, and they actually, on several occasions, uh, sided with Mecca to undermine Medina. And this finally culminated when one clan actually tried to go over and betray the city in the Battle of the Trench in 627. And in response, uh, Muhammad had the Muslim forces uh, slaughter the men of this particular Jewish clan. So we can see uh, a sort of souring of uh, Muslim feelings towards Jews as a result of these political machinations in the war with Mecca. Nonetheless, the Battle of the Trench in 627 uh, provides an enormous opportunity for Medina to strike back at Mecca, which is now uh, drastically reduced in power and vulnerable. So one might have normally expected that Muhammad would launch his forces on a march down to Mecca and basically attack and occupy the city. But that's not what he did. Instead, in 628, Muhammad and a small group of his friends and allies traveled unarmed to Mecca as pilgrims, right? And the traditional laws of Mecca held that you cannot attack pilgrims. You have to welcome them into the city and into the sanctuary of the Kaaba. They're entitled to protection. So Muhammad took advantage of this and made a peaceful unarmed pilgrimage into Mecca and sat down in the court uh, of the holy site of the Kaaba. Basically, you know, being uh, taunted, harassed by uh, by Meccans, he simply uh, marched in peacefully, sat down, and then demanded to negotiate a peaceful settlement. And uh, Mecca, at some point, had to see that this was a great opportunity for them to escape Uh, attack and annexation by the Muslims. So they negotiated a treaty in 628, uh, establishing basically the right of Muslims to travel and make pilgrimage to the Kaaba and to basically preach their religion. This treaty held for two years until Mecca violated it. Basically, they tried to build their forces back up and again attack uh, Medina. Uh, This time, when they violated the treaty, uh, Muhammad did not mess around. He brought an army with him to Mecca and marched on the city and basically demanded their surrender. So once again, uh, Muhammad was able to uh, force a favorable conclusion to this conflict with Mecca, but again did so without without shedding blood, nonviolently. So after Mecca capitulated in 630, Muhammad took possession of the city and cleansed the Kaaba, right? So went into the Kaaba and cleared out these various icons and idols of different deities, which in his view he considered to be corruptions or pollutions of what was essentially a temple purely dedicated to the one God, Allah, okay? 
Uh, and we don't know exactly when this idea arose, but certainly in early Islamic documents, we can see there was a common idea that the Kaaba had originally been built by Abraham and Ishmael, and that it was built to be a sanctuary to the God of Abraham, and that over time it had been corrupted with these other idols. Uh, so in Muhammad's view, possibly, we don't know exactly what he was thinking at the time, but it may be that when he cleansed the Kaaba, he saw his action as simply restoring the pristine purity of the temple to its monotheistic uh, purpose. Not long after uh, Muhammad died in 632, okay, so he was probably in his early 60s when he died in the year 632. And this naturally raised a tremendous question, okay? So when Muhammad had marched on Mecca and taken possession of Mecca, he basically demonstrated that he was the new rising predominant political power in Arabia, right? Uh, and all sorts of other Arabian tribes who maybe had been skeptical or inclined to embrace uh, Muhammad now went over wholeheartedly and embraced the, the new prophet. So by the time Muhammad died in 632, he was effectively the de facto political leader of most of Arabia, right? Uh, and he had begun the creation of a kind of unified confederation of Arab tribes, such as had never been seen before. But it had formed around the, the person, the charisma, and the message of Muhammad himself. What do you do now that that charismatic leader is dead? Well, uh, Muhammad's close followers and the leaders of Mecca and Medina decided to elect a new leader who would be his representative, right? Uh, after the death of the prophet. And representative in Arabic is caliph, right? So you've probably heard this word caliph, khalifa in Arabic, uh, caliph. Uh, this, this means representative. And the first elected representative who was chosen to succeed Muhammad was Abu Bakr, who I've mentioned before. He was a close friend, early uh, believer in Muhammad. And he, by this time, he had also become a father-in-law of Muhammad. So Muhammad, uh, you know, after Khadija died, Muhammad married several other wives. One of them was, uh, was Aisha, and her father was Abu Bakr. So Abu Bakr uh, is elected to be, to be the first caliph. Now, his election was disputed pretty quickly. There were some Muslims who believed that Muhammad's successor ought to be his son-in-law, Ali, who was sort of younger, uh, he was very popular, and uh, he was a, uh, a son-in-law married to, uh, to Muhammad's daughter, Fatima. And uh, so he had partisans and supporters who believed that Muhammad had actually designated Ali to be his successor. But they lost out this dispute and Abu Bakr took up power. So right away, immediately after the death of Muhammad, we see a rift begin to open up among the Muslims about who should be uh, the proper leader. Not only this, but there were many tribes and clans around Arabia who began to break away, who basically had only ever affiliated with this confederation because of their loyalty to Muhammad specifically. 
and they had no interest in belonging to some sort of kingdom or dictatorship under Abu Bakr. So very quickly we see tribes starting to break away uh, to resist the leadership of Abu Bakr, and some of them proclaim their own prophets and claim that their own leaders are now also receiving prophecies from God. And this gives them the right to follow uh, these leaders as, as representatives of God. Uh, it's probably at this time, during the short reign of Abu Bakr, that the doctrine was first propounded that Muhammad was the last prophet. Right? And this is a key teaching that you'll hear often from Muslims today. Muhammad is the prophet of God and he is the last prophet. There is no more after that. And that probably began in the 630s as Abu Bakr was trying to hold this confederation together and to delegitimize these sort of new prophets popping up around Arabia. So Abu Bakr really had his hands full just trying to keep this new Muslim uh, state, this new ummah, from breaking apart. And he died after only two years in 634. And he was succeeded by three more caliphs. And these first four caliphs who followed after Muhammad, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali, were all close friends and relations of the Prophet himself. Uh, so they gained, they, they enjoyed a certain degree of legitimacy and authority from their own personal relationship to Muhammad. And collectively, they've been called the Rashidun, uh, the righteous or rightly guided caliphs. Now, uh, it's a little ironic that, that, you know, in latter ages, they're called the Rashidun, the righteous caliphs, considering that all of them were pretty unpopular, faced a lot of opposition, and all of these later three who fell uh, after Abu Bakr were all assassinated. <laughs> right, so so there was not a lot of unity and consensus around uh, who should lead the the Amma and how, and it basically created a sort of political death trap for all of these early caliphs. So after Abu Bakr, who conveniently died of natural causes fairly quickly, uh, he was succeeded by Umar, and under Umar, Umar found a solution to this problem of keeping the Amma together after the loss of the Prophet. Islamic teachings and Muhammad's prophecies specifically forbade the various tribes and clans to fight each other, which meant they could no longer go on these constant raiding and pillaging missions against one another, which had been their main pastime for, for centuries. And it's a large part of the reason why it was so hard to keep this new caliphate together under a single leader was because these tribes and clans were used to attacking one another and engaging in feuds. So Umar had a brilliant idea. How do I keep these groups together? Well, I forbid them from fighting each other, and instead I invite them together to launch missions to go attack somebody else, right? It's the same basic logic that I mentioned before, talking about the Pope calling the First Crusade, right? Get these various feuding parties together and send them off to attack someone else. So under Umar in the 630s, the new caliphate invades Iraq, Syria, and Egypt, all major, powerful, wealthy provinces of these neighboring empires, right? So they invade Iraq, which is under Persian rule, Syria and Egypt and Palestine, which are all uh, Byzantine provinces. They capture the holy city of Jerusalem in 638, and Jerusalem now becomes uh, an Islamic pilgrimage site as well as Jewish and Christian. They successfully conquer 
uh, Persia in 641, so a major neighboring empire, is very quickly defeated. And part of why they were able to do this so quickly and effectively is because the Persian Empire and the Byzantine Empire had been at each other's throats for centuries and had now really exhausted one another, right? Their resources were exhausted, their armies were depleted, and a lot of their troops by this point, by 640, were actually Arab mercenaries. And when this new Islamic Arab army shows up to attack uh, Persia, many of these Arab soldiers simply defect. Uh, so the defenses of the Persian Empire fall very quickly, and the Arabs actually now have to scramble to recruit enough men to go in and govern these new territories and to set up something like uh, a, a, govern, a governable empire. Umar is assassinated by a Persian prisoner of war in 644, and he's succeeded by another caliph, Uthman, and Uthman oversees uh, further invasions into the Persian Empire, uh, conquering Afghanistan and part of what's now Pakistan, and also presses westward past Egypt and conquers Libya. Under Uthman, uh, there's also an effort to standardize and consolidate the basic religious beliefs and teachings of the Ummah. And the holy book called the Quran, or the recitations, is put into its final standard form, right? So uh, and this is achieved in the year 650. So if you look at a Quran today, there might occasionally be small differences between one version and another, but basically the Quran that you find anywhere in the world today conforms to this standard version compiled and edited by Uthman in 650. Uthman's policies are actually opposed by certain other powerful figures in the empire, including Muhammad's widow, Aisha, who I mentioned before, who was a daughter of Abu Bakr. Uh, these opponents of Uthman see, generally see him as being too lax in his observance and enforcement of Islamic law. They don't like the sort of luxury and hedonism of the imperial court, uh, and they don't believe that this new government is observing the teachings of the Prophet and the Quran closely enough. So, uh, so a sort of rival party takes shape, and a few extremists, a, fall, a small group of extremist opponents of Uthman, have him assassinated in the year 656. So, uh, so he's again assassinated, this time for a different reason. Now... In 656, the leaders of the caliphate have to elect a new caliph, and this time they elect Ali, right? So they go back to that son-in-law of Muhammad that I mentioned before, who had always had supporters who believed he should be the caliph. And he is finally put in place as the ruler of this empire. Now, Ali does not do what a typical Arab leader would have normally done at this point. He does not hunt down and take revenge against the people who assassinated Uthman, right? And part of why he doesn't do that is because he has partisans and supporters who wanted him to be caliph all along, who have helped him become caliph, and a lot of them feel that it was perfectly fine that Uthman was assassinated. He deserved it. He was not living up to the moral standards of a caliph. 
So Ali does not go against their wishes, and instead he, he basically allows the assassins to get away with it. And because he does this, he now gets an opposition party against him. And some of them are the same people, including Aisha. Uh, so Aisha, although she criticized and opposed the power of Uthman, she now also opposes Ali for failing to take action against the assassins who killed Uthman. So a growing opposition party arises against Ali, and Ali is assassinated in 661. Okay, so after five years of rule, Ali is assassinated. And that is, is the end of the era that we call the Rashidun uh, Caliphs. Okay, it was, a, it was a very rocky, rough time, but it was the period in which Islam first turned out from Arabia and became an imperial force. Okay, so one of the main leaders of this opposition party that overthrew Ali was named uh, Muawiyah, and uh, he also had a sort of uh, distant relation to the Prophet, but he came from a clan called the Umayyads. So when Muawiyah takes power in 661, he founds what we now know as the Umayyad Caliphate, or it was the first family dynasty, right, where this particular clan uh, created a, a hereditary rule over the empire for almost a century. And also when Muawiyah takes over in 661, he moves the capital to Damascus. So really the effective capital up to this time was Medina. That was the place where the political, uh, the first political Islamic state was created. But now it moves to Damascus, which was not an Islamic holy city. Uh, it was not a predominantly Arab city, right? It was a Syrian, mostly Christian city. And Damascus becomes a major political and commercial capital, and the Umayyads create a sort of resplendent, uh, wealthy, luxurious imperial court at Damascus, which, as you can imagine, uh, excites a lot of admiration, but also a lot of dismay and disapproval from those who, uh, who don't uh, believe that that's what an Islamic kingdom should look like. The Umayyads are able to govern the empire reasonably effectively, and part of how they do so is they create separate distinct garrison towns around the empire, right? So these occupying Islamic forces, which are mostly Arab, do not move in to the cities like, you know, Tesaphon and Persepolis and, and Alexandria. Uh, they generally stay aloof in these separate garrison towns that are governed according to Islamic law. Uh, they make Jerusalem into a major pilgrimage site, and they begin the building of the Dome of the Rock in 688. So the Dome of the Rock that we see in Jerusalem today is not the same as the one that was originally built under the Umayyads, but uh, we see that uh, this, is, this is part of how the Umayyads start to put an Islamic stamp on their empire, is creating Islamic mosques and temples at important sacred sites, particularly uh, Jerusalem. However, the caliphate from the time of Muhammad up through the Rashidun caliphs and all the way into the Umayyad dynasty, the caliphate does not force conversion to Islam. That is considered invalid uh, and against Islamic law. There should The Quran specifically says there should be no compulsion in matters of religion. Uh, so they do not force conversion and they do not encourage conversion. 
so it's generally considered ordinary and natural that people under Islamic rule should be of various different religions. And rather, the first caliph who begins to encourage conversion to Islam is the caliph Umar II in the 720s. Right? So it's, it's basically uh, 100 years after the Hejirah before the caliphate starts to uh, adopt this policy of encouraging people with incentives to become Muslim. So, uh, you know, this is a sign of, of piety and religiosity on the part of Umar II, but it's not necessarily the best strategy of imperial governance uh, because uh, non-Muslims were expected to pay special poll taxes to support the empire. And as more of them then convert and become Muslim, they stop paying these taxes. So this starts to create a fiscal problem for the Umayyad Caliphate. So as I said, uh, Christians and Jews, uh, Zoroastrians, and other uh, subjects of this new empire were considered to be dhimi, which means uh, they were legally protected and enabled to practice their various religions provided that they paid a certain poll tax. There also was a welfare system set up to support the poor and indigent of all uh, religions. So this is basically uh, the, the beginnings of what we would later call the, uh, the Islamic Golden Age. But the Umayyad dynasty didn't last for much longer. Uh, rather, in the 740s, there was a series of uprisings by various different critics of the Umayyad caliphs who were dissatisfied with the, the new empire. Uh, this included non-Arabs, uh, who felt that they were excluded from positions of power and influence in the empire. It included some non-Muslims, uh, who also felt that they were uh, treated unfairly and favoritism was given to, to Muslims. It also included Shiites. So I haven't mentioned uh, Shia and the Shia-Sunni dispute just yet because it's complicated <laughs> and hard to explain exactly how it came about and how it arose. But basically, to, to make a long story short, by this point, by the 740s, there was a distinct branch or party of Muslims who considered themselves partisans of Ali. So they, they originated from the supporters of Ali. And they too felt that the Umayyad Caliphate was too extravagant and that it was not strictly observing Islamic law and was not strictly observing egalitarianism and the sort of equality that Muhammad had preached. So these various different dissatisfied groups, non-Arabs, non-Muslims, and Shiites, uh, began to rebel and then unified around an alternative dynasty, an alternative clan, the Abbasids. And the Abbasids basically take advantage of this discontent to overthrow the Umayyads and manage to consolidate power in the empire by 750. And in that year, in 750, the new Abbasid caliph uh, invited the surviving members of the Umayyad clan to a dinner in Jaffa in Palestine. And the idea was that he would grant pardons and make peace with the defeated Umayyad clan. Uh, but at this dinner in Jaffa, uh, the honored guests were locked in and massacred, right? So this killed off almost the entire Umayyad uh, clan. But one prince 
named Abdal Rahman and his friends and one of his brothers were not present at the dinner. They learned of what had happened in Damascus and were able to flee out into the countryside. And Abdel Rahman and his brother were able to uh, escape into the night. Uh, they had to swim across the Euphrates River uh, to get out of Syria and then made their way down to Egypt and incognito across North Africa, where they eventually crossed the Mediterranean into Spain. Right, And you, you might remember Spain had been conquered and made part of this expanding Islamic empire in the year 711. So it was a sort of outlying new part uh, of the Islamic frontier. And this renegade uh, prince, Abdel Rahman, crosses into Spain, then reveals himself to the governor and uh, is proclaimed emir of Spain. Uh, and later his descendants claim the title of Caliph. So basically what happens in 750 is the, the Abbasids successfully overthrow the Umayyad dynasty, uh, create a new uh, imperial government, but this runaway uh, fugitive prince is able to then also create an independent separate Islamic kingdom in Spain, which will become a sort of thorn in the side of the caliphate and will also become a major site of flourishing of Islamic society. So later, hopefully, I'll talk about the Abbasids and about the golden age of Islamic civilization, as it's been called under the Abbasid Caliphate, and also about Islamic Spain under this surviving uh, Umayyad line. But uh, rather than get into that now, I'm just going to go back and talk about a few of these core important uh, Islamic ideas and practices that formed in this early era. Right under the Prophet himself or under the Rashidun Caliphs and the Umayyad Caliphs in this first um, century and a half of Islamic life. So one that I just mentioned uh, that, that I should address a little more is this split between Sunni and Shia, which probably, you know, we've all heard of, but it's very hard to get a clear explanation of what it's all about. And it's very hard to explain because it's not the same as the schisms that we've seen in Christianity, right? If we were to talk about, uh, say, the split between Catholicism and Protestantism, we could give a nice little doctrinal uh, nutshell explanation, you know. Uh, do you believe in scripture and tradition or do you believe in scripture alone? Do you believe in justification by faith or by works? Do you recognize the authority of the Pope? And so on. And that's because... The split between Catholics and Protestants began as a dispute over doctrine, right? And then later over time, as it was entrenched, it became a political divide between the Catholic and Protestant worlds. Well, the, the, the reverse is true when it comes to Sunnis and Shias. Uh, that split began as a political dispute over who is in charge or who ought to be in charge and on what terms. And then over time, the two sides developed some different teachings and practices. Okay, The split began, the roots of it began, as I mentioned, right after Muhammad died, right? And there was the dispute over whether Abu Bakr is his successor or whether Muhammad had designated Ali to be his successor. Uh, 
Later, Ali, as I said, became caliph himself, uh, but was assassinated in 661. And some years after his assassination, one of his young sons, Hussein, tried to uh, take up leadership and proclaim himself a caliph. Uh, he had been living in Medina, and in the year 680, he traveled from Medina to Kufa in Iraq, where he knew that there were many supporters of Ali, people who called themselves Shia, or partisans, of the cause of Ali. And he tried to uh, make himself their leader, but he was assassinated, and all of his uh, family and friends and followers were murdered outside of Kufa in Iraq in the year 680. And so these people who had considered themselves partisans and supporters of Ali became even more entrenched and radicalized by this, uh, you know, brutal uh, killing of their, the, the leader, the new leader in which they had placed their hopes. And if you talk to Shia people today, there is still commemoration of the assassination of Hussein as sort of one of their uh, defining events. Why did people care so much? What was the big deal about the dispute over whether Ali should properly be the caliph? Well, generally people who gravitated towards supporting Ali were people who believed that the other caliphs, whether Rashiduns or Umayyads, were not strict enough in their observance of Islamic governance, and particularly that they did not adhere closely enough to the egalitarian teachings of Muhammad, right? So a lot of people became Shia or flocked towards that banner if they believed that their ethnic group, that their tribal group was being overlooked and excluded from power in the growing empire, right? And, and uh, they looked back to Muhammad's teachings about equality and inclusion of all tribes and clans in, uh, on an equal basis as members of the Ummah, right? So this is part of why this uh, split began. It also gained this, this Shia party uh, that looked to Ali and Hussein as their sort of martyred leaders, this Shia party also gained a lot of support in places like Persia, where most people were not Arab. Okay, And today, the biggest majority Shia country, of course, is Iran, which is the ancient Persia. It's also the majority in Iraq. Uh, and Persia is not an Arab country, and you had a lot of uh, Muslim converts there who felt that they were not being included in the power structure and in decision-making because of the sort of corruption and uh, extravagance of the Umayyad clan, okay? So, uh, so those who had no attachment to the Umayyad clan, those who were not Arab, those who were new converts, tended to be more friendly to this Shia party, okay? Uh, but over the centuries, it's also become simply a banner of opposition of all types. Right? So whenever, you know, if you look at through Islamic history, there have been all sorts of dissatisfied, discontent groups, rebel groups who have gravitated towards the Shia side or have called themselves Shia. Although there is no precise doctrinal test uh, or confession that makes you uh, a Shia. Some other differences that have opened up over time, uh, the... There are different teachings and stories, which I'll talk about further later, about the Prophet uh, that Sunnis, the majority, take as legitimate and Shias do not, and vice versa. There are core 
books about the life of the prophet, the sayings of the prophet, that Shia take seriously as authoritative and Sunnis do not. Uh, and there is a different attitude towards religious teaching and interpretation in general, that the Shias tend to recognize direct lineal descendants of Muhammad as valid teachers of law and religion, right? And Muhammad had four surviving daughters with his wives, uh, and so there are many descendants of Muhammad still alive today. Shias tend to give them a special status and authority as religious teachers, whereas Sunnis tend to see the caliphs, right, the, the supreme leaders of the ummah, the caliphs, as being the authorities on, uh, the proper authorities on religious teaching, or simply uh, imams or uh, leaders or teachers of all walks of life who have studied Muslim law as having uh, the authority to teach, right? They do not give special status to the descendants of Muhammad. Okay, so those that's just a little, uh, you know, basic, you know, oversimplified uh, little summary of some of the differences in how uh, Shias and Sunnis approach uh, Islam. Okay, what are the core sources of teachings and beliefs in Islam that come from this first era? Well, there is, of course, the Quran. Okay, so the Quran is the central holy book of Islam, recognized by all Muslims. The Quran in Arabic, the, the word means recitations, right? The Quran is a collection of of the prophecies and teachings that were recited out loud by Muhammad and that were then repeated and memorized by his followers. Okay, In the early uh, Islamic era, under Muhammad and under the Rashiduns, there was a special class of Quran reciters, right? people who repeated and memorized and recited the Quran. And this was considered a, the, the sort of central act of worship, was hearing the Quran recited. It was only later that they began to be written down, right? So after the death of Muhammad, some scribes start to write down these uh, utterances and collect them into a book, okay? So the way they originated is they were spoken out loud by Muhammad, and Muhammad had repeated uh, prophetic uh, experiences right from that night of power in 610 all the way down to his death in 632. So he kept delivering prophecies through his time as a religious leader in Mecca and in Medina later uh, after the Hejurah. And reportedly, he would go into a sort of trance state where he would often uh, sweat, convulse, uh, he would have visions. He described these experiences as being very wrenching and painful, and he would then begin to to prophecy in Arabic, usually in verse, right? Uh, and, you know, whatever you might consider about Muhammad theologically, he clearly was a very talented poet and composer. He was able to deliver what seemed to be spontaneous prophecies, often in very subtle, sophisticated verse and rhyme, such that they could be easily heard, repeated, and memorized, right? And he did this uh, apparently without literacy. He never uh, learned to read or write. This was all oral. So, so from all evidence, he was an incredibly talented, brilliant composer of the Arabic language. Uh, 
these different prophecies were delivered at different times responding to different situations. Okay, so if you look in the Quran, it's divided into chapters called surahs. And these surahs are not in any particular thematic or chronological order. Rather, there's a short introductory surah uh, called the Al-Fatiha, and then there is a whole series of different surahs addressing different topics, and they're in the order of length, with the longer ones first, and then down to the shorter ones. And there are, I believe, 114 of these surahs, and they range from, you know, many pages long down at the end to short ones of just a few verses. This can make it difficult for people to just walk in and start reading the Quran and understand what it's all about, because these different surahs were written at different times to address different dilemmas, right? Someone might come to him and say, we're under attack, what do we do? And he could deliver a prophecy, which is now a surah in the Quran. People could say, we have a prisoner of war. What do we do with him? People could say, I want to divorce my husband. What do I do? And Muhammad would deliver prophecies of different kinds and different lengths in response to these crises and questions as they arose. And Muslims have always traditionally believed that in order to interpret the Quran, you have to know what these different situations and episodes were that Muhammad was addressing right? Uh, so you can't just open up the Quran and say, aha, this one says, uh, you know, throw the, throw the unbeliever in jail and think that means Muhammad wants to throw all the unbelievers in jail. Uh, it may be that that particular surah was responding to a particular problem with a particular prisoner of war, right? And what do we do with him, right? So, uh, so the, the surahs of the Quran have contexts when they were written to address certain problems, and you don't see that context in the Quran itself, okay? You have to look to other sources, and I'll talk about those in a minute. There are many uh, surahs in the Quran that deal with war. Uh, how do you fight war? Uh, how do you attack? Who do you take prisoner? Who do you kill? Uh, who is it okay to kill? When is it okay to go to war? And so on. And these are generally surahs that were composed in Medina, at the time when Medina was at war with Mecca. And they govern what Muhammad considered to be a just war and a defensive war. And it's open to doubt whether any one of these uh, prophecies is intended to govern all war as such, or if they were about particular questions that arose in that particular series of wars with Mecca. There's also a lot of, if you look in the Quran, there's a lot of condemnation of the unbelievers, right? Kafir or unbelievers. Uh, so Muhammad clearly uh, directed a lot of animus towards, towards unbelievers who did not embrace his message. And that too is, is a problem when we open up the Quran and see these passages and think, oh, he's saying all non-Muslims are bad and that you should punish non-Muslims. The main groups that he aimed these prophecies towards were Arab polytheists uh, or pagans and so-called hypocrites, people who, who outwardly embraced Muhammad's message but whom he believed were not sincere and still secretly did not em really embrace Islam. And he considered this a big problem in Medina when they were at war with Mecca. He was afraid of disloyal uh, Medinans who did not really respect or accept Muhammad's message and who would be disloyal and collude with Mecca, which is something we do know did happen, right? 
So when we see these passages about unbelievers in the Quran, we have to keep in mind that's mainly who he was thinking of and not Jews and Christians and people of other religions as much. Uh, rather, as I'll, I'll talk about later, he accorded very special status and protections to Jews and Christians whom he believed to be valid, legitimate worshipers of the true God. Okay. So, as I said, the Qur'an was originally a set of oral recitations. And if you, traditionally, Muslims are not supposed to primarily learn the Qur'an from reading, but rather from hearing and reciting, right? So, uh, there's an initial, as I said, there's an initial short surah opening the Qur'an, uh, which in English translation roughly reads, uh, in the name of God, the infinitely compassionate and merciful, praise be to God, Lord of all the worlds, the compassionate, the merciful, ruler of the day of reckoning. You alone do we worship and you alone do we ask for help. Guide us on the straight path, the path of those who have received your grace, not the path of those who have brought down wrath, nor of those who wander astray. Amen. So I'm going to uh, play for you uh, a recording of uh, an Islamic uh, reciter reciting this this initial surah uh, from memory so you can hear sort of the poetry and the musicality of the Quran as it's supposed to be heard. A'udhu billahi minash Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Okay, so that's the Al-Fatiha uh, Surah. There are over a hundred others of various lengths with different poetic forms and also some in prose. Uh, and it is, it is traditionally supposed to be experienced in this way uh, orally. Now, as I said, the Qur'an, it's very complicated to interpret and apply the Qur'an. There are many ambiguous passages. There are some contradictory passages. There are many questions that it doesn't answer. And so it's not a simple proposition to say, oh, we're just going to govern a society according to the Qur'an, right? There are all kinds of problems that might arise. You know, what if someone commits adultery? What do you do? What if someone refuses to obey one of the religious laws? What do you do? Uh, what if someone uh, is a monotheist, but from some totally different religion we've never heard of? What do we do with them? Uh, all of these questions keep arising. And for that reason, uh, Muslims tend to refer to a traditional body of practices, which they believe go back to the time of Muhammad. And this body of traditional practices is called the Sunnah. Uh, and it's taken very seriously by Sunnis, right? Uh, so Sunni uh, Muslims are the majority and they're simply called Sunni because they are people who 
derive their practices and ideas from tradition, the sunnah, right? Whereas the Shia, as I said, tend to depend more on the decisions and teachings of descendants of the Prophet. But both Sunnis and Shias uh, look for more information beyond the Qur'an to understand what it's saying and to understand what Muhammad would have done in response to various problems. And for those answers, they look to documents called the Hadiths, okay? H-A-D-I-T-H. Uh, the Hadiths are documents recording things that Muhammad and his followers did or said in the time of the Prophet, which are taken as guides, right? What did Muhammad do when he was told a woman had committed adultery, right? What did Muhammad say when he met uh, a Jew who didn't believe in his teachings, right? So these sorts of problems, people refer to the Hadiths. And these hadiths were compiled by various different authors, mainly in the 700s, right? So at a time when these stories about the Prophet were still in circulation orally, scribes began to write them down and put them together into collections, okay? This is a very similar process to what we talked about in the Gospels about Jesus, right? Between about AD 70 and AD 100, uh, followers began to write down stories and utterances attributed to Jesus and collect them into short books, right? At a time when people who had known Jesus personally were dying off, right? The hadiths are very similar. It's the same sort of thing. What are the things Muhammad did? What was his life? What did he do? What decisions and judgments did he make? And these were collected even later, right? Around 100 to 200 years after Muhammad died. And Muslims traditionally acknowledge that different hadiths are more or less trustworthy, right? It's important to record who recorded this, what was their source, what was their authority, and different hadiths are considered more trustworthy than others, okay? But these hadiths create a sort of basis for Islamic laws, practices, and teachings beyond just what you see in the Qur'an, which is really incomplete, okay? So what are some of these teachings and practices that Muslims derived from the Qur'an, from the actions and sayings of Muhammad, and from, these, from the Sunnah and the Hadiths? Uh, well, they include, of course, as I've said, strict monotheism, right? There is only one God. This God is the creator. Uh, this God created humankind from a single man and woman. All humankind, therefore, are a family uh, and creations of God. Uh, Islamic ethics include charity, uh, giving to others, uh, peace, and unity among Muslims. They also hold past prophets before Muhammad to be valid, right? So the initial covenant between God and humankind was made by Abraham. Uh, Moses was a legitimate prophet and lawgiver. He is discussed uh, in the Quran. Also, uh, other later prophets like Elijah, also Jesus is considered to be a prophet, although the Quran does not consider him to be a son of God and does not consider him to have risen from the dead, he is considered a valid prophet. Also, later after the time of the Quran, in the Hadiths, we see that similar recognition is extended to Zoroaster, the Persian, the ancient Persian prophet, and eventually to all prophets and lawgivers around the world, right? Islam holds that all peoples around the world have received a book uh, of, of laws and teachings 
from God, and that Muhammad is merely the last of these prophets. Okay? Islam is strictly anti-iconographic and anti-idolatrous, right? No images of any sort are allowed in anything involved in Muslim worship, okay? We know that Judaism is also anti-iconographic, right? There is a commandment against graven images, but Islam goes uh, even further, really, in strict uh, prohibition against any kind of images uh, in Islamic worship or art. There is uh, a heaven, an afterlife, that will reward the good, those who uh, believe in Allah and those who keep uh, divine law, will be rewarded with a heaven that is described as a garden with rivers, right? And this is uh, not surprising, considering that this is a, a religion that arose in the desert. Uh, you know, a lush garden with water is considered the sort of uh, most uh, beautiful and enticing uh, environment. There also is a coming judgment day, which you heard referred to in that first surah, right? There will be a day of reckoning where uh, there will be, uh, the, the good will be separated from the bad. And further in, in the hadiths, there is a further elaboration of this future prophecy. They, uh, they teach that there will eventually be an apocalypse where a Muslim leader uh, and Savior will arise and take power uh, in Mecca, and uh, this leader will have to fight the Antichrist and defeat the Antichrist to take possession of Jerusalem, and then uh, the uh, then Jesus will appear, uh, defeat the Antichrist finally, and then usher in the Judgment Day. Okay, so, so you can see where Jewish and Christian apocalypticism, which I've talked about before in other lectures, were absorbed and integrated into these early Muslim teachings about the apocalypse and the final judgment day. How are Muslims supposed to worship? How do you worship Allah? Uh, well, this centers on five pillars, right? So the Sunnah boils down five basic uh, practices of the faith that are incumbent on all Muslims and that sort of form the backbone of Muslim practice. First, there is the shahada or confession of faith, right? So Muslims are supposed to profess, uh, I testify there is no God but God and Muhammad is his servant and messenger. And if you uh, recite this shahada sincerely, that is considered to make you a Muslim. That's how you convert to Islam, right? Rather than a ritual like, like uh, baptism, uh, reciting the shahada as this basic testimony of faith is what makes you a Muslim, according to Muslim tradition. Secondly, salat or prayer. You're supposed to pray five times a day. Uh, usually hear recitations of the Quran. You might gather in a masjid or mosque with other Muslims, and you pray facing Mecca. Thirdly, zakat, or the giving of alms. Uh, this, you know, this word zakat comes from the Hebrew tzedakah, uh, give, uh, giving to the poor. And it's, it's considered compulsory for all those uh, of means to give to the poor, and it's considered shameful for a Muslim to amass a large fortune rather than giving it away to the poor. Uh, and zakat is supposed to be uh, a mechanism for maintaining a more just and equal society. Uh, Salm or fasting, 
right? Muslims are expected to fast during the daylight hours throughout the month of Ramadan, right? And this is a reference back to, to Muhammad himself in his time when he would fast and pray during the holy month of Ramadan. And lastly, Hajj or pilgrimage. All Muslims who are able, who have the means, are expected to make a pilgrimage to Mecca, right? Uh, and it's interesting to note that out of these five pillars, the confession of faith, prayer, almsgiving, fasting, and pilgrimage, three of them, almsgiving, fasting, and pilgrimage, all have pre-Islamic roots, right? All of those were widely and commonly practiced in Mecca by Arabs before Muhammad and were sort of integrated into Islam as Muhammad taught it. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of, of, of continuity there. And Muhammad did not see himself as overthrowing the traditions that he had inherited in Arabia. Rather, he saw himself as reforming and purifying them, right? Returning them to a strict monotheistic basis. But these basic uh, elements of, of worship at Mecca that had always been there before Muhammad continued and simply became global once Islam became a major global faith. And some of these basic central concepts and terms, right? I talked about Islam itself, the idea of, of submission and also of peace and unity. Uh, also, uh, jihad, right? So I mentioned jihad before. Jihad in Arabic simply means struggle, right? Effort or struggle. And initially, it was used in the Quran to refer to the struggle to create a Muslim society in Medina, right? To create a sort of just, unified society submitting to uh, Muhammad's teachings, right? It also then was applied to the struggle between Medina and Mecca, right? The sort of fight for the survival and success of the Ummah against their enemies in Mecca, right? And if you look in the Quran and the early Hadiths, that's clearly uh, what it's originally referring to. It's understood as a fight for survival, a defensive struggle against those who would try to destroy uh, Islam. and But as you probably know, in later ages, it has taken on all sorts of different uses to mean uh, different kinds of wars and conflicts between Muslims and non-Muslims or infidels. Okay. Thirdly, uh, this whole process that I referred to of trying to figure out the correct rules and the correct applications of Islamic teachings to legal and political situations. This was called fiqh, F-I-Q-H, uh, sort of legal reasoning, jurisprudence, which became a very contentious issue under the caliphate, right? Who decides what are the precise laws of Islamic society? How do you interpret and apply these preachings from the Quran? And different schools of legal thought quickly arose. Those who might be more literal, those who might be more metaphorical, those who might be more strict, those who might be more liberal. These different legalistic schools began centuries of debate, right? And if you go and ask any single person what is the correct uh, Islamic law about marriage or about uh, punishing murder, you get all kinds of different answers, right? And this system, this tradition of interpreting and applying Islamic law 
in different ways came to be called Sharia. Okay, and Sharia, it's a metaphor. It 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 actually means the stream, or or sort of stream running out of a spring, right? So again, this 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 metaphor, this imagery of rivers and water, and the basic idea behind Sharia is that you have to study the sources, like the Hadiths and the Sunnah and the Quran, to try to get back to those basic uh, correct teachings of the prophet, right? But it's understood that Sharia is constantly being debated, it's constantly being changed and revised, and many different schools of thought have many different views, okay? So there is no book that you can open up and say, this is the book of Sharia law, you know, in the way that uh, you might be able to say, you know, show me the law books of the state of Massachusetts. There's no such book of Sharia. It's, it's the tradition of teaching and interpretation, which varies and changes, okay? And as for the how these teachings were applied to society, you know, there's the central concept of the Ummah, the unified community, which originally meant Muslims and other people under Muslim rule, but later gradually shifted to just mean the community of Muslims, okay? And you can see that these teachings about the Ummah, for example, in, in, in early Hadith, it's reported that Muhammad said, Hold firmly to the rope of Allah altogether and do not become divided. Remember the favor of Allah upon you when you were enemies and he brought your hearts together and you became brothers by his favor. Right? This is one of the central themes coming right from Muhammad through early Islam is adhering constantly to unity uh, in the Ummah, which is ironic considering how many civil wars and assassinations actually happened uh, in practice. Uh, as I said, the Quran preaches extensively about how to wage a, d a just war, which generally is a defensive war in defense of the Ummah, how to treat prisoners, uh, how to treat booty. And later, after the time of Muhammad, particularly under the caliphs, a further concept arose of a division of the world into two houses, right? The Dar al-Islam, the House of Islam or House of Peace, and the Dar al-Harb, the House of War, right? So uh, traditionally, you know, Sharia teachings hold that there are different rules for how you're supposed to behave in the Dar al-Islam, which should be unified and peaceful, as opposed to the Dar al-Harb the place where Islam is not in control and Muslims have to fight to survive. The Quran also has significant teachings about men and women, right? So, so the, Muhammad and the Quran preach uh, equality, but not strict equality between men and women, right? Men were considered to be supreme over women within families and households. Muhammad ensured that women should have their own inheritance, shares of inheritance. They should have control over their own incomes and their own property. So in all of these ways, Muhammad tried to create more status and protections for women than had existed before in Arabia, right? He was trying to reform relations between men and women to give greater safety and dignity to women. Uh, one of the hadiths says that Muhammad preached, the best among you are those who are best to their wives. And he preached that men should be able to marry up to four wives. Okay, so polygamy was common in Arabia before Muhammad. And this is important to remember. Muhammad uh, adopted and continued 
a lot of the core traditions of Arab society, but he tried to also purify and reform them. So he put a limit on four wives per man, and he preached that uh, men, after their first wife, men should generally marry widows and older women who need economic support and protection. This is also apparently what Muhammad practiced. He did. He married more than four wives. He made an exception for himself and married, uh, I believe, I believe it was seven wives by the end of his life, and most of them were older women and widows, and most of them tended to come from powerful high-status clans. So in his view, his marriages were largely uh, acts of protection and patronage and also strategic political alliances with tribes and clans whose loyalty he wanted to ensure. And that seems to be more or less the model he wanted uh, Muslim men to follow if they had enough means to marry more than one wife. Muhammad and the Quran allow for divorce. Uh, adultery is one of the grounds for possible divorce. And uh, the legal grounds were considered the same for men and women. Men and women had the same power to divorce for the same reasons. And the punishments for crimes like adultery were equal for men and women. The Quran preaches that women must cover their breasts, but it does not preach that they must cover their faces. Okay, uh, Covering of faces is a sort of Middle Eastern regional custom that got adopted into Islamic practice, but it doesn't seem to have been there at the beginning in the time of Muhammad or the Rashiduns. And the Quran just says women should cover their breasts when in public. But as I said, men and women also were not equal within the family. So the Surah 4 in the Quran deals particularly with women. And it says, uh, verse 34 of Surah 4 reads, Men have authority over women by right of what Allah has given one over the other and what they spend for maintenance from their wealth. So righteous women are devoutly obedient, guarding in the husband's absence what Allah would have them guard. But those wives from whom you fear arrogance, first advise them, then if they per persist, forsake them in bed, and finally strike them. But if they obey you once more, then seek no means against them. Okay, so we see here a description of marriage as unequal, where the man is supreme because he d provides for the woman in the household. Man has authority, the man has authority over the woman, and has powers to, to enforce his authority. This is basically comparable to what we would have seen in pretty much any other text in the Mediterranean or Middle Eastern world in the 7th century. You know, we today can see this as, as abhorrent because it does not preach equality and strict nonviolence, uh, but it was, in Muhammad's time, it was seen as an improvement over the way women had traditionally been treated previously. And furthermore, if we look at uh, what uh, the Quran advises here for how to deal with a disobedient wife, it says, first admonish or advise them, then forsake them in bed, right? Sleep separately from them. And then at, finally, as a last resort, strike them. And this word that's often translated as strike is a verb, daraba, 
and it actually has disputed and not entirely clear meaning. And today, some translators actually argue that that verb daraba, also in, in Arabic, can mean uh, abandon or, uh, or leave. Uh, so some translators actually argue that it should say, you know, finally, if, if your wife is disobedient, then leave them, meaning divorce them. Uh, but most scholars tend to agree that it means something like strike or beat. Now, lastly, Muhammad and his early followers were very aware of Judaism and Christianity. They might not have been able to read the Jewish and Christian holy books. They might not have had the finest detailed understanding of those traditions, but they certainly had been exposed to Jews and Christians. And Muhammad considered uh, Judaism and Christianity to be valid and to be based on true legitimate prophecies delivered from God. Monotheists who had holy books, like Jews and Christians, were referred to by Muhammad and his followers as al-al-kitab, or people of the book. And the Quran in Surah 2 says, uh, Verily, those who have attained to faith in divine writ, as well as those who follow the Jewish faith and the Christians and the Sabians, all who believe in God and the last day and do righteous deeds shall have their reward with their sustainer. And no fear need they have, and neither shall they grieve. So this verse seems to establish that Jews, Christians, and some other unknown group called Sabians are legitimate, and that they can expect uh, the afterlife the same as Muslims. However, there are other passages in other parts of the Quran that seem to contradict this one, that say uh, only Islam is the true faith, uh, and those who choose any other religion will not go to heaven. So there's a, there's a tension there, and different Muslims interpret that tension and reconcile that tension in different ways. However, we know from historical documents that the original Ummah in Medina did include Jews. And a surviving document, which is called the Constitution of Medina, lays out rules for how the Muslims and others are to coexist and cooperate in Medina. And at one point it reads, To the Jews their own expenses, and to the Muslims theirs. They shall help one another in the event of any attack on the people covered by this document. There shall be sincere friendship, exchange of good counsel, fair conduct, and no treachery between them. So from documents like this, and from the Sunnah and the Hadiths, we can see that uh, Muhammad's original ideal was coexistence and mutual respect between Muslims, Jews, and other monotheists. But this was strained and seems to have broken down because of power politics between Mecca and Medina. There are many hadiths and other early documents that say that Muhammad was recognized and endorsed by Christian monks as a true prophet. Uh, we also know that Muhammad sent messages to other rulers in surrounding states, such as the Persian emperor and the king of Ethiopia. Uh, and the king of Ethiopia actually recognized the validity and legitimacy of Muhammad. He did not convert to Islam. Ethiopia continued to be a Christian kingdom under a Christian king. But the king of Ethiopia extended protection and recognition to the Muslims and sheltered some Muslims who fled from Mecca. As I said before, conversion to Islam was not encouraged for about the first hundred years of the Ummah, right? It was not considered uh, seemly to try to pressure Christians or Jews 
to become Muslim. And this only later became uh, a policy uh, to encourage conversion. And even then, forced conversion was considered uh, illegitimate. Right. So the relationship between Islam in these early foundational years and Judaism and Christianity is complicated, but it was one underpinned by a great deal more mutual respect and acceptance of one another's legitimacy than we saw probably anywhere else in the world at this particular time. In the earliest sources and in the earliest teachings, Islam took uh, a very respectful and measured approach towards Judaism and Christianity, which is not surprising considering how much Islam was founded on the belief that the Arab world needed a prophet and a prophecy like the Jews and Christians had, and that they wanted a similar relationship to God like the ones that they believed Jews and Christians had through their prophets and through their laws. So those are the basic ideas that I want uh, us to be able to understand from this sort of foundational time of Islam. And hopefully later I'll be able to talk about Islam in the so-called Golden Age, about different Islamic empires and societies, and about modern-day Islam and why uh, the relationship between Islam and other religions and societies has become such a fraught uh, topic. So thanks for listening, and I encourage you, if by any chance you can contribute or help uh, to keep these lectures coming, please go to my Patreon page, also under Historian Explaining, and the link is in the description, and any small contribution you might be able to make is very appreciated, or any uh, reviews or uh, communications on social media are also very appreciated. Thank you for listening.